Hi everyone. It's a real joy and a privilege to be able to share God's Word with you in this way today. We're continuing with a sermon series we began a few weeks before Easter on the topic of spiritual disciplines, habits for wholeness. Last time we spoke about spiritual disciplines, we spoke about the habit of reading God's Word, of allowing God to speak to us through the Scriptures. And today I'd like us to have a look at the counterpart to that, the habit of prayer. If Bible intake is the habit of allowing God to speak to me, then prayer is the habit of me speaking to God. There is so much to say on the subject of prayer. There are entire bookshelves devoted to the topic. There is so much for us to learn. Prayer is a mountain range whose highest peak we will never reach, no matter how long or high we hike. I find great encouragement in what Billy Graham once had to say in this regard. Speaking about prayer, he said, we never get it licked. But prayer is a vitally important aspect of spiritual growth. After Bible reading, it is the second most important habit in our lives. The best place to start when it comes to the subject of prayer would be to have a look at what the Lord Jesus himself had to say about prayer. And let's do that by looking at what Jesus said about prayer in his famous Sermon on the Mount, recorded for us in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, and we'll read verses 5 to 13. Jesus said, When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And this is God's word. There's such a lot that we could look at in these verses. You could preach an entire series just on the Lord's Prayer itself. And in fact, we did work through some of the Lord's Prayer last year. But I'd like us to consider these verses under three broad headings. What is prayer? Why do we pray? And how do we pray? Because there's so much here, we will look at the what and the why of prayer today and come back to the how of prayer next time. Firstly then, what is prayer? I think that a working definition is found in verse 6 where Jesus says, But when you pray... Go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. 
Prayer, then, is a private conversation between two parties, ourselves and our Father in Heaven. Perhaps private isn't quite the correct word, because there are, of course, times where we do pray in front of others. Jesus is not issuing a ban on all public prayer here. Perhaps the word personal would be better here. Prayer is a personal conversation between two parties, because even our public prayers should come out of a personal relationship. It's vitally important that the amount of time we spend in public prayer does not exceed the time we spend in private prayer. In other words, if the only time we pray is in public, then we're in trouble. But let's use that as our working definition. Prayer is a personal conversation between two parties. It is an I-thou conversation. After his death, a number of C.S. Lewis's letters were published, and this comes from a book called Letters to Malcolm, chiefly on prayer. C.S. Lewis wrote this to his friend Malcolm. The prayer preceding all prayer is, May it be the real I who speaks. May it be the real thou that I speak to. And I think that this passage in Matthew chapter 6 addresses something of both those two parties in prayer, the real I and the real thou. Let's have a look. Firstly, may it be the real I who speaks. What does this passage say about the me side of prayer? And there are a couple of things, a couple of words that come to mind. Firstly, there's the word honest. In verse 5, Jesus says, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. In Jesus' day, the word hypocrite referred to an actor on a stage. At that time, actors would wear a mask to represent the character that they were playing in the production. And that's where we get that famous symbol for the theatre from, the two masks representing tragedy and comedy. A hypocrite was someone who was playing a part. The mask that they wore, the part that they played, wasn't who they really were. It was not the real them. And all of us, to a greater or lesser extent, have parts of us that are hidden. We wear masks, or maybe even costumes. When the person at the bank asks me, how are you? I answer politely and succinctly. I don't tell her how I really am inside. We take off our masks in proportion to the closeness of our relationship. And Jesus says here that we're not to wear a mask in prayer, either in front of others or in front of God himself. We are sometimes tempted to put on a mask before God, and we share with him what we think he wants to hear, rather than sharing with him what is truly there. The insanity of that, though, is that God knows it all anyway. The psalmist says in Psalm 139, You perceive my thoughts from afar. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. Why in the world, then, would I try and hide from God? 
It seems, too, that God is unwilling to call my bluff. If I choose to operate with him on a superficial level, he won't force his way in. He constantly calls me to himself, but he won't audibly interrupt my prayers and say, come on, get real, I know what's really going on. He allows us to choose that shallow interaction. But it's sad, because that kind of relationship really won't go anywhere. Just like in a human relationship, when all the two of us speak about is rugby and cricket, and we never share about our children and our wives, everything's fine, we say, that relationship will go nowhere. So it's possible for me to come along to church for the rest of my life and sing the hymns and listen to the sermons and occasionally address God in some short formal prayer, but lose out on an intimate, personal relationship with God. And so, as one writer puts it, I must learn to trust God with what God already knows. I came across a book of prayers this week, and in the book there was one particular prayer that struck me. Obviously, the writer of this prayer had had something terrible happen to him, and this is how the writer addresses God in prayer. Lord, give my enemy a short life and give his job to somebody else. Make orphans of his children, dress his wife in widow's weeds, turn his children into begging street urchins evicted from their homes, homeless. May the bank foreclose and wipe him out, and strangers like vultures pick him clean. May there be no one around to help him out, no one willing, willing to give his orphans a break. Chop down his family tree so that nobody even remembers his name, but erect a memorial to the son of his father. Make sure his mother's name is there too, their sins recorded forever before God, but they themselves sunk in oblivion. That's all he deserves, since he was never once kind, hounded the afflicted and heartbroken to their graves. Since he loved cursing so much, let curses rain down. Since he had no taste for blessing, let blessing flee far from him. I tried to find the context for this prayer. Was it perhaps written from a concentration camp, maybe out of the experience of Rwanda? No, it comes from the book of Psalms, Psalm 109, in a slightly modern version. And when you read through the book of Psalms, you find the most startling honesty. The whole range of human emotions and experiences can be found there. There's anger and despair and doubt Worse doubt than you'll even find in some of the writings of famous atheists. Some of the writers tell God to wake up and do something. The prayers are incredibly direct, not the kind of prayers that you usually hear in church on a Sunday morning. And yet the very fact that they are recorded in Scripture is an invitation to us to pray like this, honestly and openly before God. God invites us to be honest with him. As Philip Yancey puts it in his book on prayer, prayer invites me to lower my defences and present the self that no other person fully knows to a God who already knows. Honesty. Secondly, in terms of the real I in prayer, we see in this passage that we are dependent. Verse 11, for example, 
give us today our daily bread. The word dependent is not a particularly popular one, is it? We don't like to think of ourselves as dependent on anyone. As human beings, we like to feel in control, independent. I'm a bit of a control freak. When we go on long trips, I drive and I don't stop and ask for directions. We like to be in control. Independence is something that we long for in our children. It's nice when they can begin to do things for themselves. When they are potty trained, that's a great milestone. When they can help around the house. When they can drive and go to the shops for us. Part of parenthood involves moving our children from dependence to independence. The fact of the matter is, though, that with God, we never graduate from dependence to independence. Our very ability to think, our very consciousness, is a gift from God, along with that breath that you just took. The Apostle Paul puts it very well in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7, where he writes, What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? And this sense of dependency should also lead us to the third word that describes the real I in prayer. We come before God in humility. In a moment, we will see how unbelievably and inconceivably great God is. And when we catch a glimpse of that, it leads to humility. There's a wonderful scene in the film Rudy. I don't know how many of you have seen the movie. It's about a young boy called Rudy Rutiger, whose lifelong dream is to play American football for Notre Dame University. But at one stage, his dream is not going very well, and so he goes and has a heart-to-heart -heart talk with his priest, Father Cavanna. And during the conversation, Father Cavanna says this. He says, Son, in 35 years of religious study, I have only come up with two hard, incontrovertible facts. Number one, there is a God. Number two, I am not him. That is real wisdom. The very act of prayer itself is a tacit acknowledgement that there is a God and I am not him. Humility. In Psalm 46, we are invited to be still and know that I am God. So honest, dependent, humble. And then there's a fourth word that comes to mind when I consider the real I in prayer. It's the word sinful. We see that in verses 12 and 13 where Jesus teaches us to pray, Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. When we come near to a holy God, when we pray in verse 9, Hallowed be your name, we realize that we are not holy. We are sinful. That was the experience of Isaiah in the Old Testament when he saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne with just the train of his robe filling the temple. He cried out in alarm, 
Woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Equally, this was the experience of Peter in the New Testament after Jesus had provided the disciples with a miraculous catch of fish. We read in Matthew chapter 5 that he falls at Jesus' feet and says, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. I'm not suggesting that in prayer we always grovel before God and crawl around like worms, but it's important to be honest about our sinfulness and to deal with it in prayer. It's also important to know that our hearts are deceitful and that sometimes we can even fool ourselves in prayer. That's why the psalmist prayed in Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And of course, we bring our unconfessed sin and our unrecognized sin before God in the light of the promise of 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, which says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sin and purify us from all unrighteousness. May it be the real I who speaks, not a hypocrite, but someone who is honest and humbly recognizes my guilt and my dependence. But let's move on to the person whom we address in prayer. May it be the real thou that I speak to. In his little book, The Knowledge of the Holy, the American pastor Aidan Tozer wrote these words, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Many people have a mental picture of God. God is a judge, a policeman, a vending machine, a buddy, a grandfather. But none of our pictures, even the best ones, adequately capture the living God. And many of our pictures are inaccurate or downright blasphemous. In his book on prayer, the Christian psychologist Larry Crabb says this, It is possible that millions of Christians across the world who think they're praying in Jesus' name are in fact praying in the name of someone else, to a God that the Bible knows nothing of. And so it's vitally important that we allow the scriptures to be constantly updating and challenging and changing our picture of God. This passage, and in particular the prayer that Jesus teaches us to pray, radically challenges our picture of God. And while we don't have time to look at all of this in detail, let's remind ourselves of a few things. Firstly, the real thou is a father. In verse 9, Jesus tells us that we are to pray, Our Father. That's a wonderful a stunning way to be able to address God. The Apostle John marvels at this in 1 John chapter 3, where he writes, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Sadly, the word father is a difficult word for some people. 
There are folk listening to this who do not know their earthly fathers. There are those who have emotionally absent fathers, those who have abusive fathers, those who have drunkard fathers. But I guess that even if we have a great father, there's always a gap, isn't there, between the father that we have and the father whom we long for. And when Jesus told us to address God as father, he was thinking of the best possible father, the father whom we long for. But secondly, the real thou in prayer is not merely our father, he is also our Father in heaven. He fills the universe. I was looking up at the stars a few nights ago, and as I did so, I reminded myself of a couple of things. Our closest star is the sun, which is a mere 150 million kilometers away. Light travels at 300,000 kilometers a second, and it takes light eight minutes to travel the 150 million kilometers from the sun to us. That means that if for some reason the sun ever went out, it would take eight minutes before we knew anything about it. When the sun moves to the other side of the earth, at night, I get to see some of the other suns, the stars in our galaxy, and some even beyond our galaxy. Some of these stars are much vaster than our own sun. The next closest star to us is Proxima Centauri, which is 4.3 light years away. That means that it takes light, travelling at 300,000 kilometres a second, 4.3 years to reach us. In other words, when I look at Proxima Centauri, I'm actually looking back in time. I'm looking at what that star looked like four and a half years ago. The Southern Cross is made up of five stars, four that make up the kite shape and one just off-centre. The closest star in the Southern Cross is 88 light-years from us, and the furthest is 364 light-years away. So that when I look at the Southern Cross, I'm actually looking back in time to what the Southern Cross looked like 364 years ago. It's even possible that some of the stars I see in the night sky aren't even there anymore. On a clear night, you can see the Andromeda Galaxy, which is a faint, fuzzy patch of light near the great square of Pegasus. It is two and a half million light years away. Light travelling at 300,000 kilometres a second has taken two and a half million years to reach us. So again, when we look at the Andromeda galaxy, we're actually looking at what it looked like two and a half million years ago. When you look up at the stars and you start to think like that, you actually just want to go back inside and switch all the lights on. In the words of Psalm 139, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. And it is the God who created and sustains all of this whom we address in prayer. Do you think a God like this needs my information, needs my advice? No wonder the writer of Ecclesiastes says this on the subject of prayer in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Do not be quick with your mouth, 
Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth. So let your words be few. We probably need a bit of balance in this area. This past week I was reading in the book of Acts and I came across a lovely little phrase that I hadn't noticed before. After Paul's conversion from being a persecutor to being a preacher, Luke tells us, Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. We need both of those elements in prayer. And the little phrase, Our Father in heaven, reflects something of that balance. Links to that, when it comes to the thou side of this prayer relationship, we also recognize that God has priorities that may very well be different from our own due to our limited perspective. Before we come with our own requests, Jesus teaches us to pray, Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Those phrases go together, and the order is important. Lord, I do have needs, but you have desires too. You desire for me to set you apart as Lord in my life. You desire for your kingdom to come on earth and in my own life. You desire for your will to be done in and through my life. Which leads to a slightly different perspective in prayer. Lord, please do allow this surgery to go well. Lord, please help my job to get better. Lord, please help me to find a spouse. Lord, please may I have some more friends. But Lord, please don't allow my desire for personal comfort to interfere with your greater purpose of forming Christ in me. So may it be the real thou that I speak to, our Father, in heaven, who has good plans and priorities for my life. In his famous children's book, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis describes how the four children, Peter, Susan, Edmund and Lucy, meet the good lion, Aslan, who really represents Jesus in the stories. But before they actually meet Aslan, they have a conversation with two beavers who tell them a little bit about Aslan and tell the children that they will soon meet him. When the children hear a little bit more about Aslan, they become a little uncertain. Let me read the passage to you. Is he quite safe? asked Susan. I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I think that in that passage, Lewis captured something very important about the character of God, that God is not safe, that God is not a tame God, but that he is good. And that picture hopefully allows us to avoid the danger of fatalism on the one hand, that God will do whatever God wants to do, 
or manipulation, on the other hand. If we can just come up with the correct magic, we can get God to do what we want him to do. In his book on prayer, Larry Crabb says that God is at once endearing, furious, sensitive, aloof, playful, holy, welcoming, terrifying, responsive and unpredictable. In other words, he is someone with whom I can have a genuine relationship. Which brings us to the second question that we should ask, and that is, why do we pray? We only have time to address this very briefly. There's a very interesting contrast in verses 8 and 9. Jesus says, Your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This then is how you should pray. So God knows what we need, but we are encouraged to pray anyway. I think that wisdom often comes in the Christian life when we can hold two seemingly contradictory teachings together at the same time. And this is true in the area of prayer. We have to hold two seemingly contradictory teachings together simultaneously. On the one hand, we have to acknowledge that God is sovereign. He is, in the words of Ephesians chapter 1, the one who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. And at the same time, he is the one who says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. But perhaps what may help us here is that concept of God as Father, which we looked at earlier. In his book, A Call for Spiritual Reformation, the New Testament scholar Don Carson writes this, If a boy asks his father for several things, or within the father's power to give, the father may give him one of them right away, delay giving him another, decline to give him a third, set up a condition for a fourth. The child is not assured of receiving something because he has used the right incantation. That would be magic. The father may decline to give something because he knows it's not in the child's best interests. He may delay giving something else because he knows that so many requests from his young son are temporary and whimsical. He may also withhold something that he knows the child needs until the child asks for it in an appropriate way. But above all, the wise father is more interested in a relationship with his son than in merely giving him things. Giving him things constitutes part of that relationship, but certainly not all of it. The father and son may enjoy simply going out for walks together. Often the son will talk with his father, not to obtain something or even to find out something, but simply because he likes to be with him. Which is probably the main reason that we pray. As Larry Crabb puts it in his book, Prayer is not so much about getting more things from God as much as it is getting more of God himself. So with that in mind, let me mention two reasons to pray real quick as we come to an end. Firstly, prayer does change things. Sometimes we get to see that and sometimes we don't. Prayer can be quite difficult and daunting, even at times discouraging, because it doesn't seem as if we're actually doing something. How can I pray for an entire country like Vietnam, where Christians are being persecuted? Will my little prayer make a difference? What about praying for a friend who's been unemployed for months? Do my prayers count? 
In the book of Revelation, we get a picture of prayer from God's perspective, a behind-the-scenes look at what prayer does. In chapter 8, the Apostle John has a vision and he says, Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of God's people, went up before God from the angel's hand. And then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. It's a marvelous picture that shows our prayers make a difference. In those times when I feel discouraged or unmotivated in prayer, I sometimes begin my time of prayer by saying, Lord, you've commanded us to pray. You've said that it is not a vain thing to call on the name of the Lord. You've said that the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And Lord, I'm not a particularly righteous man, and yet I acknowledge that what I am doing here is something significant and something worthwhile, something that will bring results, something that will change things even though I might never see the results. Prayer changes things. And secondly, prayer changes me. Henry Nowen was a Catholic priest and a writer. He taught at top universities in the United States and then gave it all up to work with mentally challenged people in La Arche Daybreak community in Canada. And he once asked this question about prayer. He said, why should I spend an hour in prayer when I do nothing during that time but think about people I'm angry with, people who are angry with me, books I should read and books I should write and thousands of other silly things that happen to grab my mind for a moment. And he came to this conclusion. We must pray, not first of all because it feels good or helps, but because God loves us and wants our attention. Sitting in the presence of God for one hour each morning, day after day, week after week, and month after month, in total confusion and with a myriad of distractions, radically changes my life. In verse 6, Jesus says, Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. What is the reward? Is it more things from God, or is it more of God himself? In one of his books, the American pastor and sociologist Tony Campolo tells the following story. He says, when I was a teenager, I hated Sunday evening services. Sunday morning wasn't so bad. The sermon had some form and structure, but in the evening, the preacher wasn't prepared. You could tell from the sermon that he was winging it. It was also quite obvious that he hadn't even bothered to prepare worship, and you could tell that because he would always ask, Does anybody have a favourite? And dear old Mrs Kirkpatrick, five rows from the front on the right-hand side of the church, would always have a favourite, and it was always the same favourite, number 111 in the Tabernacle Hymn Book. As a kid, I hated number 111 in the Tabernacle Hymn Book. When you're a tough kid growing up on the rough streets of West Philadelphia, you do not like number 111 in the Tabernacle Hymn Book. It's in the garden. You know the song. Imagine a 15-year-old boy singing, I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. The second verse to me was even worse. He speaks, 
and the sound of his voice is so sweet that the birds hush their singing. I hated that song, but that's because I was 15. The older I get, the more I love that hymn, the more I love to find a quiet place to go off alone and be with Jesus and to sing the chorus of that song. And he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me that I am his own, and the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. And so this week, may it be the real I that speaks, may it be the real thou that I speak to, and may there be a joy, a peace, a love in that relationship that no one else knows, but that far surpasses the joy of any other relationship. Amen.